Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talked to Graham Baselio. Graham is an artist, a photographer and a video and audio content producer. Uh, he's invaluable in helping do the post-production for my YouTube uh, videos and indeed this podcast. Um, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes and we'd love to know what you think. So why not write a review or give us some stars on your podcast platform? You can find out more about Sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for Sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in the idea and not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hey, Graham, how are you? What's up, Jamie? Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you again. It's, it's slightly odd because this is one of the only conversations I'm doing in this series where I've actually spoken to the person before. So uh, <laughs> it's nice to talk to you again, albeit remotely. Nice to be here. You know this better than anybody because your uh, post-production skills are invaluable in smartening up my rough and amateur videos and podcasts. So you know this already. But for the people listening and watching, yeah, welcome to Sentientist Conversations. And it's really a series of conversations about the two deepest questions in philosophy, I guess. What's real? What should we believe in? And how should we choose to believe? But also what matters morally? And where should we draw our moral circle or our moral polygon or whatever shape you want it to be. So, so sentientism, as you well know, is this really simple pluralistic worldview that says, when we think about what's real, we should use evidence and reason, a naturalistic way of understanding reality and engaging with reality. And when it comes to what matters, the clue is in the name, that we should think about sentience, the capacity to experience things, suffering, flourishing, as the way we set our moral boundary. And we should do that so that no suffering is excluded in, you know, in simple terms. So that's really what sentientism lays out. But these conversations are about how the people I'm speaking to answer those two questions, what's real and what matters. So it's going to be fascinating to explore that with you. But before we go on to those questions, for people who don't know you already, how would you introduce yourself and uh, your focus in life? Yeah, so I'm an artist, a background in photography, but I've been currently focusing in uh, post-production, as you mentioned. And yeah, in general, I guess I have a range of interests from philosophy to art and science, effective altruism. And recently, I've really developed an interest in what you're working on with sentientism. Yeah, great. Well, good to talk. So if we start with the first of those two deep questions, what's real? It'll be interesting to know your own personal philosophical journey so far. So for many people, this conversation starts with, I guess, their upbringing and how they grew up. Did they grow up in a naturalistic or an atheistic environment or, or in a more religious or um, a different type of cultural environment? So it'd be great to sort of understand your story and where you've got to so far on how to choose what to believe. So I was raised in a Christian environment, and I have to say it was a very loving environment. Mm. And I think that my parents' expression of God's love was really their expression of their own love, raising my brother and I. My primary involvement was the choir. I had some theological study, but it wasn't my primary involvement. I, I yeah. have to say it was more the, the music and that sort of thing. I won't ask you to sing, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I was voice soprano, so... It's, uh... You've gone a couple of octaves deeper now. <laughs> Yeah, there was actually a period where, yeah, we were touring England and I, my voice like switched right <laughs> during the tour. To, and so I, I think I, I went from a soprano to a bass. <laughs> like, wow. While you were on the tour. Yeah. <laughs> Just to learn all the new parts and stand in a different place. Yeah. So I, it didn't 
start to become, I guess, more problematic to me until, you know, having conversations with some people of that community where, for example, in discussions concerning, you know, heaven and hell, I remember one girl saying, you know, regrettably, her Jewish or, you know, Muslim friends were going to hell and, and things like that. And that really stuck with me. And I think things like that were the seeds to really questioning that body of knowledge and, and ethics. Yeah. And so... And the, and the tension there between your parents' natural, deep, rich compassion and probably a pretty universal compassion. And then the somewhat casual comment by your friend that, you know, people who believe the wrong things or don't believe at all will be tortured for eternity is as though that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a strange, <laughs> strange balance. It is a strange environment, especially for, you know, a kid, I think. And so it wasn't really until studying comparative religion in college that I began to think more deeply about, you know, some of the logical contradictions, how strict interpretation of monotheism isn't really consistent with polytheism, or even just how Christians are generally quite atheistic towards some of the older you know, Greek <laughs> gods and things like that. Yeah. And also, but on a more serious, like moral point, all the theodicies presented to me, which are basically explanations for things like the problem of evil, were never honestly very satisfying to me. I, I, I never found them convincing. Yeah, those explanations often seem to end up in the ineffable nature of God and we were not designed to understand him or her or it and they move in mysterious ways. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't find much intellectual satisfaction in those answers either. But. And then so subsequent to that, I encountered some of the new atheist writings, such as Daniel Dennett's Religion as a Natural Phenomena, Sam Harris's Moral Landscape, also, just in general, read more evolutionary biology, like Stephen Jay Gould. And yeah. I think it's just increasingly the picture of the naturalistic worldview just became more and more, you know, salient to me. Yeah. However, I should say, on the flip side of that, also in reading Karen Armstrong, which is also a comparative religion author, writers such as her focus on the compassionate unifying elements of religious tradition as well. So if there's one productive way forward between both interfaith dialogue and also secular science faith dialogue, that it really should be, as you're promoting in your work, this focus on compassion. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's deeply important. And as much as anyone, I can fall into the trap of being a little bit snarky or a bit dismissive <laughs> about religious ideas, partly because, you know, I have that same sort of epistemological challenge about the incoherence or the conflicts in just the logic and the thinking, but also because I do think some of the ethics can be very warped and very damaging. And I'm, you know, enormously robust at standing up for people who are oppressed by some of those belief systems. I, I think that's really important what you say is that actually there's a, such a rich vein of genuine deep compassion that flows through most religious systems and most religious people that, you know, I think most religious individuals are, are more moral than the formal structures of the church or the book they purport to follow or the, the priests and, you know, who, who run their churches. And I think working on that common basis of compassion and talking about how to expand and extend that and how to, you know, move into a position where we build on that compassion and make it less conditional and less 
exclusive and others and tribalism, I think is a, is a much more productive way to go than, than just dismiss the whole thing. Because there's enormous meaning Absolutely. that people find in the community and the culture and the tradition and, and that compassion. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be pretty strident and robust when yeah, the ethics fall off the rails. So. But no, it's been interesting to hear. And, and one of the reasons that we talk about a lot in this, this series of conversations is, okay, if, if we don't have that sort of supernatural basis for our morality and our ethics, you know, what are our ethics grounded on? So some people will, because, because they're scared by the answer to that question, they're worried about losing their moral roots, will sort of double down and go back to a religious or a supernatural a worldview, even if they don't technically believe in the supernatural stuff anymore. They sort of hang on to that because they're nervous about losing their grounding. Other people will go to almost another extreme of relativism and say, well, okay, there is no grounding to morality it's just something that we negotiate in different groups and who am i to judge the morality of one set of people over another regardless of whether it causes enormous suffering it's you know purely relativistic which i see as a somewhat insidious way of thinking but i don't think you've followed either of those paths so how would how would you describe the grounding of your morality in that naturalistic way of thinking what matters to you it didn't become really, I guess, formal exercise until college. A primary influence was studying Peter Singer's work. Yeah. In that he views ethics as a body of knowledge that can be revised over time. And that the truths that we can discover about morality are truths that can be developed through reason and, and critical reflection. Yeah. And so that really resonated with me. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the interesting implications of that approach because i think many people will follow that line but they can still draw their moral circle in very different ways so some people would echo everything that you and i have said so far but they would still draw their moral circle around a subset of the human race leading to all sorts of inter-human discriminations that we're still struggling to um, suppress and resist now but one of the other big steps is okay at what point do you realize that humans aren't the only things that suffer and therefore you know, there's an implication for broadening our moral circle beyond the human species. So how how early did that become a factor for you? Again, was that reading Singer's work? and Singer's work was definitely the primary catalyst. Of course, I was aware of animal suffering. Oh, well, actually, I can point to a very specific moment, which was yeah. studying in elementary school. I studied Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle. I think it was like fifth grade. And that talks about factory farming. I don't know if you, you're aware of the, nah, the work. I haven't yeah. heard it. So that was probably my initial exposure to the idea of factory farming. But, you know, as, yeah, being in elementary school, I, I, I don't think I... It's quite young to come across those ideas. But when I encountered Singer, that's when I really had to face those ideas head on. And even in that case... I still put it out of my mind, right? There were years yeah. where I just didn't think about it. And I think it wasn't until the documentary called Earthlings yeah. that I really, truly digested, you know, what was going on. I think sometimes it just takes something like that, you know, just seeing direct documentary footage. It was just very powerful. And it's almost like you can't hide from it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. After watching that and subsequently rewatching, you know, yeah, many of Singer's lectures, I decided that, you know, I really had to change my lifestyle and that I didn't think 
what was going on was morally justifiable. Was that quite an easy process practically? And was it quite an easy process socially? How did it feel to actually make those adjustments? The initial transition was probably a bit cognitively difficult because I didn't want to do it because of convenience. But once I felt that firm conviction about the ethics, it actually wasn't hard at all. It was a bit hard in the beginning because I didn't want to do it. But once I made the transition, it was actually quite easy. And then socially, you know, I would get all sorts of shit about it. But actually, the social thing, it didn't bother me as much. Because at that point, you have that footage in your mind, right? Yeah. And it's no longer a joke. And it's no longer a difficult decision. Yeah. So it's almost as if the the level of ethical conviction you had, uh, once you decided to act in line with those ethics, gave you that sort of confidence to push through the social challenge and... Yeah. yeah. But I, and I think that that seems common in lots of people I've spoken to is that when you look forward to it and, you know, I went through that period of deliberately not thinking about the topic for much longer than you did. I mean, my journey was painfully long and, of course, is never complete either, right? Because none of us have reached some sort of perfect ethical end state, but just the really obvious stuff like <laughs> dropping animal products wherever you can. That took me a long while to get to. But I think for many people, it feels quite daunting when you look at it before you do make the change. Again, socially or practically, you're not sure how it's going to work. You know, you know people are going to look at you like you're a weirdo. But once you've taken the commitment, you've taken the decision and you've dived into the cold water you look back and think, why didn't I do that earlier? And it was, you know, remarkably easy. So, But it is amazing how something that seems so ethically obvious can feel quite daunting and quite difficult and quite socially unusual to do. And that's another theme that comes through a lot of these conversations is, you know, on the one side, there's evidence, reason and universal compassion. And it somewhat seems almost tautologically self-evident and obvious. And then on the other side, you have the, you know, the dead weight of social norms and tradition and people thinking you're strange and that it really acts as an incredible break even on topics that i think technically seem quite straightforward you know there are many really complex philosophical questions in the world that we'll be arguing about forever but there are some really really obvious basic things and i think to you and me this this seems like one but um most of the people on the planet disagree most people don't like the idea of animal suffering but Because it's so ingrained, I would say the primary response is typically something like, well, can they suffer, really? I mean, or is it quick or that sort of thing? Mm. I I would say many people take a default of almost like a necessary evil or something like. Yeah. And as long as it's quick or if it's painless or whatever, then it's okay. But I, I would say to that that, look, I had the exact same feelings, but... I would ask you to look at that footage with your heart of hearts directly. Here's one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's Luna. What's up, Luna? Can I say hello? She's a bit sleepy. We had a good run earlier, so. <laughs> but yeah, I have a oh, high good. degree of confidence in her sentence, right? Look into, look into her yeah. eyes. And... <laughs> hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> oh, I even got a meow. That's nice. In reflecting on that capacity for sentience and just, you know, looking directly at that footage, I think we should ask ourselves, is there any justification for such treatment? It's a, and, and it's an indication of the the depth of the cognitive dissonance. You know, any vegan on Twitter is is very used to all of these arguments, right? But whether it's <laughs> We did it for millions of years. It's natural. 
you know, it's socially normal. Animals don't suffer. Even if they do suffer, they're killed humanely. They have a net positive life before they die. You know, I've, I've even had people bite the bullet and say, you know, farming human toddlers would be ethical if they had a net positive life. I'm like, my God, you know, if, wow. if, 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 if you're willing to you know, go to these lengths of intellectual gymnastics to justify this thing, it's probably an indication that you're fighting a losing battle. And there is, I think there is a degree to which the, the moral battle is over. Right? I mean, it's, the answer is so incontrovertible and clear. Most of the ethical arguments are no longer driven by ethics. They are just desperate attempts to reverse engineer some form of justification for what society thinks is normal. I think the ethical battle is over. And I think it, it's it's more a question now of just finding ways of making it much easier for 8 billion people to bring their actions in line with, as you hinted at, the sort of latent ethics they already have, which is needlessly causing suffering is bad. So we've almost got to, I think there are some people for whom you know, ethical argument still works, right? They'll see a documentary or they'll have a discussion and a light will go on and their sense of moral conviction will take over and they'll change. But that's quite a small percentage of the population and we'll be working for a long, long while if we, that's the only lever we're pulling. You know, and that's the next section of our conversation really is about thinking about a more sentientist future. We might not like it, right? We'd love the sheer force of ethical argument would change more people's minds. But I think given the, the dead weight of social norms, we're also going to have to make it easy for people to upgrade their ethics by providing alternatives and by frankly by normalizing this way of thinking which is one of the motivations behind us you know working on this project together is just to make people realize that rationality and a broad sentiocentric compassion are increasingly getting close to the mainstream so people need to jump on board before it's no longer edgy and cool <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's that would be a good next stage of the conversation really is to think about you know if we can move towards a future where more of the eight you know, becoming nine, maybe 10 billion people on the planet adopt a more naturalistic way of engaging with reality and broaden their moral circle to recognize the value of all sentient beings. How do you think about that future? And again, some of your personal interests will play into this, but I'm interested both in the sort of short and medium term, but also, if you like, a sort of sci-fi future about where we might be able to get to if we shift towards a more sentientist world. So I think definitely... A future of both the cell-based and plant-based alternative products is, as you said, essential for making the transition easy and available. I do think we should be ashamed that factory farming still exists. In the long run, I think we should move away from animal agriculture altogether and help fund animal sanctuaries and allow these beings to just live out their lives outside of that entire context of objectification and exploitation. Yeah. I would hope that post-COVID, we take the zoonotic risks more seriously, acknowledge the relationship between animal exploitation and, and COVID. Yeah. It's, it's around two-thirds to 70%, I think, comes from, if not animal farming, you know, intensive animal farming or hunting or you know some form of animal exploitation is driven zoonotic disease i think it's that that proportion it's enormous wow. and it's interesting you mentioned factory farming specifically because of course there is you know there's bad and even worse in fact in, in animal farming but um one you know most people who consume animal products will disagree with you and me about ending animal farming completely 
to, to your earlier point, there's still common ground we can work on together, even with people who consume animal products. And factory farming is a great instance because- uh, Most you know, people sent, are against it. Yeah, a, a substantial proportion of meat eaters who, who think factory farms are awful and should be shut down. And you can see some of the initiatives that are going on in Switzerland with the petition work that sentience politics are doing there and the bill that Cory Booker is trying to bring forward in the US. Factory farming is becoming acceptable almost in the mainstream to consider- shutting it down completely. And and again, you know, while it's it might feel difficult to work with people who still think animal farming could can you know exist in a viable way, if we're really interested in driving down that inexorable curve of slaughter and billions of farmed animals, then finding common cause around the most egregious instances like factory farming. I think there's a lot of, again, latent sort of latent ethics that we can tap into because many people see them as awful. So Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the point on the zoonotics is interesting as well, as is the climate change challenge. So, you know, I've, I've argued that even if you're a human who only cares about the human species, you should still go vegan because the zoonotic disease argument, antimicrobial resistance and climate change, uh, such a threat to humans anyway, that even if you have zero moral consideration for farmed animals, you know, there's still a really strong argument to end animal farming. So absolutely. So yeah, again, there's common ground, I think, in many of those topics that we can work on. I do think some of the longer term goals should include extending legal personhood in the context where it makes sense. I think taking wild animal suffering, uh, something we should be taking seriously, Yeah, which is currently uh, quite neglected. There's some great work being done an organization called Animal Ethics and uh, Wild Animal Initiative on that. Yeah, many people are very um, hesitant about the wild animal topic, partly because I think rightly they're, they're very nervous about this sort of human hubris about intervening in nature, although, of course, we do that at catastrophic scale already. So I'm not sure why that should be a reason for hesitation. But given the complexity of ecosystems and, you know, our weak understanding of what goes on in those, you know, I can understand that we, we need to be prudent. But that doesn't justify excluding wild animals from our moral circle. That just means we should be, you know, do more research and be prudent and be cautious about how and whether we intervene. So, Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, frankly, in a similar way to the cognitive dissonance, you know, I experienced in thinking about things like factory farming. Yeah, you know, I, I thought about wild animal suffering, but but frankly, if you take the principle that all suffering matters morally, then I think it is something we should think critically about. And I agree, it has to be approached with incredible prudence. Yeah. And I think it links to something that we see even within human ethics, where there's this temptation to say, you know, because this topic is complex, or because I don't feel I can have an impact on it, we shouldn't worry about it at all. And I'm like, well, you, but you, that doesn't work in human ethics, right? Just because you don't know how to help with some remote humanitarian conflict, you don't just cut those people out of your moral consideration. They still yeah. morally, that suffering is still morally salient, even if you're unsure about how, how and whether to help. And I think that's a really important distinction to make is fine, let's deal with these really complex, difficult, tricky problems and let's do that in a prudent way and, and so on. But but don't respond by just carving, you know, trillions of sentient beings out of your moral consideration in the first place. Because as soon as you do that, you have no motivation to even think about a solution. Um, yeah. I know we've had personal discussions about effective altruism mm -hmm. and what is the best use of one's time and energy and, and resources. I mean, it's even in that community where there's so much critical thought going on. It's not easy, right? It, it's not it's not clear. And so I think that also applies in, in the non-human context. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the effect of altruism movement is fascinating because 
as you say, there's an enormous diversity of opinion within that movement about how to do the most good and even the, the level of demandingness we should apply to ourselves, which you know is a, is a tricky balance to achieve as well. But I think that's an important point about the naturalistic stance is that it doesn't imply you know, there is one reality, we all share it, therefore there's one set of facts that we all agree on and, you know, it almost becomes a naturalistic dogma in its own right. You know, maybe we'll get there at some point. And of course, over time, you would hope there would be convergence because we're developing different forms of evidence about one reality we do all share. But in practical terms, there's loads of different types of evidence, loads of different weightings of importance of evidence, uh, loads of different perspectives that we have because you know we have different inputs to our information processing architecture and we've all lived in very different ways and there's different ways of reasoning about things as well i mean there's no you know sort of one perfect incontrovertible logic so the, the diversity of opinion and the you know richness of disagreements amongst you know effective altruists or sentientists is breathtaking and um, quite innovating i find yeah and actually i would say that diversity in is in a way essential and that actually mm. It's a perfect transition into, you mentioned, uh, you know, sort of sci-fi future or, yeah. or far future. You know, one author I know has been brought up briefly on the podcast, but I want to reemphasize is that of David Deutsch, who is a philosopher of science who's written on the relationship between knowledge, creativity, and progress. Mm. How every field of knowledge whether it's economics or medicine or positive psychology or politics, these are all bodies of knowledge, which through continual criticism and all those you know, debating perspectives and creativity is a continual process of revision and progress. It, it, in a way, it seems like almost a very simple view, like, oh yes, progress can you know, continually occur, but he grounds it in such a rigorous and compelling way in epistemology and philosophy of science and history. It's hard to summarize quickly. I'd say check it out, you know, watch watch some of the videos, check out his work. So that that would be one author that I'd I'd say is yeah. pretty inspiring. Yeah. I find that work fascinating as well. And it doesn't it's not naive at the same time, right? It doesn't pretend that all problems will be solved and we can't make catastrophic mistakes and we might not wipe ourselves out or do awful things. It's not naive in that context of a mm. sort of an incontrovertible positive progress that always moves forward and nothing can ever go wrong, right? I think it's still fair to say, even in these troubled times, that for the average human, it's probably you know one of the best times to have been alive uh, in human history. It's certainly not true of non-human animals, but it's, it seems fair to say of humans, but that progress is incomplete and many awful, awful problems remain and it's uncertain whether we'll be able to continue. And even if we do, it's bumpy and halting and, um, you know, we, should, we shouldn't give up on trying to move those things forward. But the view is essentially that problems are inevitable, but what we're trying to do is get to better problems. And that's yeah, progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and his vision of Again, the sort of sci-fi view of where you could end up if we manage to avoid wiping ourselves out as sentient beings is also somewhat mind-blowing because I think he sets out a view that if something's possible within the laws of physics, the only thing that's stopping us being able to achieve it is access to that the requisite level of information. And again, that takes you to some quite strange places when you start thinking about the long-term future. But yeah, sort of a fascinating world of possibility opens up, I guess. That knowledge includes compassion, right? 
the compassionate project is as grand as we aim for, right? And that's that gets back into what we we're saying about it can feel overwhelming looking at a problem like wild animal suffering because of the numbers. But it doesn't mean in principle it's out of reach. And yeah. I think we should be thinking very broadly and thinking long term about the reach of compassion. So that's, you know, and I have a lot of respect for um, people like Magnus, who I, I know uh, we may have on your podcast. Uh, I'd love to, yeah, Magnus Winding, yeah. Yeah, who, you know, is trying to do a lot of really fundamental search in that area to see what might be possible. Yeah, there are lots of different views about how to alleviating suffering of all sorts. So they'll be thinking about human ethics and global poverty and disease and equality. They'll be thinking about wild animal suffering. They'll be thinking about farmed animal suffering and, you know, these sources of catastrophic, you know, awful and largely needless suffering in the world today. And, you know, those are the priority causes. Others will, and I think some in the transhumanism movement are a little bit guilty of this saying, oh, that's, that's just sort of dull day-to-day detail. I'm interested in this sort of elitist far future where I can enhance my own lifespan and my own quality of my sentience and, you know, go and um, explore the galaxies and so on. I'm, I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. But so, so I'm, I'm painting a bit of a caricature, right? But there's, there's, there's a whole swathe of different views about how to prioritize the different things. How do you think about balancing those two sorts of visions? Because one of the other areas where I think they come together is in the areas of uh, design and culture and art, because while it's very obvious to focus on alleviating direct physical suffering in something like farmed animal suffering. Um, I don't think that suffering is the only thing that matters. I think that enhancing the quality of sentient experience, including ours as humans, is important as well. So there's, I think, direct you know, moral value actually in those design questions and those culture questions, those questions of art that we can also you know, create moral value now, even while we're trying to alleviate suffering. How do you think about those different fields of thought and you know, whether we can do both at once or how they interlink, <laughs> it's tricky questions. I have to say, this is something that I struggle with. I do think it's hard to justify working too much on promoting flourishing in light of extreme suffering. However, people really devoted to these issues, there's risk of burnout, there's risk of compassion fatigue. There needs to be areas of life that are something to live for, something... Yeah to hope for, something to cherish. So I don't think everything, every minute should be about addressing suffering every second. However, I would hope that we reach a point where in addressing the most egregious or extreme forms of suffering, that would free up our civilization. I, I think you've even mentioned how, you know, if we can just get the people who are just daily thinking about problems of survival. Yeah. If we can just get them to a place where they can focus on self-actualization and projects outside of mere survival, I think that would be an incredible win. (laughs) Can you imagine what good the human race could do? the, The butterfly effect of that. Yeah. Right. And I suppose, like, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want. We've grown out of our infancy. 
The challenge, Mr. Offenhouse, is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself. Enjoy it. That would be one version of an ideal future where it's post-scarcity. The focus really is on self-actualization, not that of basic needs. And so I would hope that we take that potential seriously and that we do address extreme suffering, but that we also aim to bootstrap that to bring out the best in ourselves and, and what could be. You know, it feels compelling to me, and I think it's quite similar to my view, is that the, you know, the imperative of suffering can feel somewhat overwhelming and is a clear imperative. At the same time, you know, whatever you, people might think about the human species and the good and the bad we've done, uh, we're probably the only one that has the capability to radically improve things for ourselves and for other sentient life on this planet. So, so one great way of doing that is, as you've said, you know, freeing ourselves from the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, although as I understand it, he didn't really like the idea of a hierarchy. But yeah, those, those yeah, more sort yeah. of basic needs, right? Freeing ourselves from the fear and worry about survival and sustenance and security to enable ourselves to tap into that latent compassionate ethics and to leverage you know, our amazing technical abilities to move us towards more of a Star Trek future. Um, yeah. And who, who knows, you know, once we're roaming the galaxy, the range of other sentient beings we might experience and might create. Yeah, I do hope for a great flourishing of many kinds of sentient beings, many different talents and abilities and all interrelating and learning and influencing and, and tolerating each other and improving their quality of life. That would be my my hope. Sounds very good to me. And I think that's one of the strange things. Um, you know, other sentientists will disagree about you know exactly what sentience is. But to my mind, it's really just a class of information processing that happens to evolve in biological entities as a way of modeling the self as an entity in an environment. And um, this is just what it feels like to run that processing. But one of the fascinating things about that, some might feel that's like quite limiting and quite you know mundane. Firstly, I'd say, well, it isn't because the wonder of the experience we're having moment to moment is the only thing that has moral value to me. So I think it's fascinating and it's almost a privilege to, you know, be part of this bootstrapped information processing architecture. But also what it means is that the potential range of sentient experience could be totally unbounded. So, you know, many humans explore this already through, you know, meditation or different practices or biomedical technology or psychedelics or, you know, already even with our current set hardware, um, thinking about radically different qualities of sentient experience. But as we do even more technical engineering and bioengineering, you know, who, who knows where we might be able to get to? We might even be able to connect up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Think of how the internet's transformed. It's, it's a kind of global nervous system in a way. Yeah. I would hope that technologies like the internet and whatever comes after it would continue to enhance compassion. Yeah, roll on the mind, melding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Graham, that's probably a good place to finish. We, so we've put the world to rights. We're going to abolish all suffering, open up an unrestricted world of sentient flourishing, the like of which we can't, can't even conceive of today, and um, roam the galaxies in a Star Trek future. Let's go do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having the conversation with me today, Graham. What's, what's the best way of people sort of following your thinking and keeping up to date with your work and your future projects. Yeah, at this point, the best place is Twitter. 
So we can link that below. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. And I, and I should say that I genuinely think you're doing some amazing work with the project. It's excellent. You're really building community around this idea of evidence and reason and compassion. I wish you the best for the project. And it's it's a really important project. And you're putting in all this work to really you know, ensure that moral circle expansion. And it's quite a courageous thing to do. And so I'm, I'm really happy that uh, to see people working on this. Thank you. Well, it's great yeah. to have you as a part of it. Good to have you on our wall of sentientists <laughs> on the website. And I really appreciate your help with this project too. Thank yeah, you, Grant. Yeah. Cool. Take, Take care. care See ya. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?